0: John 15, uh, 14 and 15, uh, I've called you friends, not slaves or servants, uh, because, you, because you know what I'm doing, okay? And and also because you are obedient uh, to what I ask of you. I think that all believers are called to be friends of Jesus. Uh, you also look at uh, philos and philoi in Hellenistic literature. Uh, that is one of the great virtues that Aristotle uh, builds and also mm-hmm. um, Plato. So to be called to be friends of Jesus is an invitation into apostolic partnership. And I believe that is the calling of every believer to be open to Christ's leading, to be attentive to his leadership, discerning of what it might be, and then responsive and obedient in carrying it out. And that's what I think it means to be a follower of Jesus.
1: Hey, everyone, welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Dr. Paul Anderson, professor of biblical and Quaker studies at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. It is no exaggeration to say, Dr. Anderson is a leading expert on the Gospel of John. He was a founding member of the John, Jesus, and History Seminar within the Society of Biblical Literature, the leading international society for studying the Bible and related works. He has written extensively on the Gospel of John, particularly on how the fourth gospel was likely composed in order to answer misunderstandings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This actually comes up quite a bit in our conversation about the Gospel of John, and so I think it's important to reiterate this point. Dr. Anderson believes that John wrote his gospel account in order to correct certain misunderstandings of the first three gospels, like, for example, the belief that maybe John would not die. See John chapter 21, verses 20 through 23. Some of what Dr. Anderson spoke about may surprise you, but since we're all learning and growing together, it's okay to be challenged and honestly not to agree with everything I or my guests say. Still, I had a wonderful time talking with Dr. Anderson, and I think you'll be blessed by his conversation as well. If you enjoyed this episode, and I think maybe others may benefit from it, could I encourage you to like it and share it on your preferred social media platforms? If you haven't already, would you also consider subscribing to Faith in the Fold so you don't miss out on any future episodes? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Paul, thank you so much, sir, for joining us on the podcast today. I am really excited to dig into the Gospel of John with you. For those who are familiar with the, with the in-depth technical study of the Gospel of John, uh, folks will definitely know you, and so I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you, sir, for joining us today.
0: Hey, you bet, Kevin. Great to be with you.
1: So to help folks uh, kind of get to know you who maybe haven't had an opportunity to study, uh, study the Bible at uh, kind of a, a formal or, or a, you know, graduate level, help us get to know you a little bit, you know, sort of where you're teaching, how long you've
0: been teaching, and uh, maybe what piqued your interest in the Gospel of John. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, I'm Professor of Biblical and Quaker Studies at George Fox University, as well as serving as Extraordinary Professor of Religion at Northwest University in Potsdam, South Africa. I mean, some people are ordinary, as some people are extraordinary. <laughs>
1: I, I have not heard the title "extraordinary professor" extraordinary before.
0: That. I've heard "emeritus,"
1: but "extraordinary." That's that's pretty that's pretty swanky.
0: Well, it's, it's a real honor, and part of what I do is is help people there um, do scholarship. I advise them on on issues. Uh, I've lectured there, and so um, yeah, trying to support that great institution and fun to be working internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, the Gospel of John has been a lifelong interest, of course, reading it on my own before seminary. It's always been a favorite. And yet uh, at Earlham School of Religion, studying with Alan Culp, he had just done his PhD at Harvard with uh, Helmut Kester and George McRae. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we used Raymond Brown's commentary and some other good, books, good good works. But I did a term paper on belief in the Gospel of John. These things are written in my belief, Jesus Christ, Son yeah. of God, His name. So the interest that I had was, okay, what things are written? Um, How does the narrative lead the reader to a believing response to Jesus as the Christ? And what does it mean to have life in his name? Um, I ended up writing like a 50 page paper, even though it was twice the length of what had been requested. (laughs) And what I saw there is that the witnesses in the narrative, the signs in the narrative, and the fulfilled word in the narrative all lead people to believe in jesus as the christ and so then thinking about you know what is that believing process like Uh, it's a participatory believing in kind of relationship with jesus as the christ so that seemed to be pretty significant also at Earlham school of religion um one of my other mentors was elton trueblood and elton was uh considered the dean of american religious writing in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And um, his most important book, which I've gotten back into press, is called A Place to Stand. As Archimedes, um, the uh, Greek philosopher, said, give me a place to stand and I can move the entire Earth. Um, Elton's book, which was a sequel to Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis 25 years later, uh, argued that for the believer, Jesus Christ is the place to stand. And Elton flipped things around. Instead of asking the question that was the uh, patristic question, how is Jesus God or human or both? Mm-hmm. Um, Elton asked the revelatory question, how is God like Jesus? Or how does Jesus reveal the Father yeah. God's love for the world? And so as I thought about doing a PhD, I thought, well, you know, it'd be really fun to do a PhD on on John's Christology. And if you know anything about church history, uh, John's Christology, the humanity and divinity of Jesus, equal to the Father, subordinate to the Father, high view of miracles, existentialized miracles, present eschatology, future eschatology. Virtually every single theme in the Gospel of John, theologically, has multiple aspects to it, or at least two aspects to it. And so what I wanted to do in, in, uh, in, in doctoral studies was to try to understand what is the character of those theological tensions, and so I ended up going to Glasgow working with John Riches, who, who was one of the translators of Rudolf Bultmann, and, and Riches was also and is also a Jesus scholar and a synoptic scholar. So that um, that that really got me into thinking about Boltman's answers to those issues, mm-hmm. as well as other scholars, which led me eventually to come up with my own theory, an overall theory of John's composition, relation to other Gospels, historical situation, which I call John's dialogical autonomy.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, For those. I'm, I'm a professor here at George Fox University. Uh, goodness, I'm in my thirty-third year. Congratulations! Wow. And uh, i served in pastoral ways uh, in three churches before that, um, but hey, I'm I'm running low on excuses now since I've been here for so long.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. Uh, just to just to back us up just a moment, because um, you mentioned um, you mentioned some things that um, you know some of the audience will might need to unpack just a little bit. Um, this fellow by the name of Rudolf Bultmann, a very influential German theologian, that. Um, if you're going to do really anything in new testament studies mm-hmm. that involves uh, jesus or the gospels or <laughs> anything along those lines mm-hmm. he is one of these people that you simply cannot you know he's so tall you can't go over him right he's so low you can't go under him he's so big you can't go around him you kind of you got to kind of deal with him mm-hmm. um and then a couple of other things that you had mentioned too some of these uh, some of these issues in in the gospel of john um you touched on eschatology for just a moment. Uh, for those who again aren't aren't really rooted in this kind of study, help us unpack this term eschatology uh, just for a little bit. Maybe how John touches on some of that.
0: Yeah, well, eschatos means last things. <clears throat> so studies of eschatology have to do with the timing of God's final activity in human history. And so, like in John, you have present eschatology of Christ being present through the Holy Spirit. But then again, you have uh, the believer being raised up on the last day, which is like mm-hmm. a futuristic eschatology. So, just to give you an example of the way Boltmann dealt with that, Boltmann, as well as inferring multiple sources underlying John and a redactor adding different material later on, uh, you know, final editor, um, Boltmann used that complex composition approach to explain the theological tension. So, so Boltmann argued that the later um, uh, futuristic eschatology, maybe that was added by the final editor. Mm. Well, when I look at eschatology in Paul's writings and in contemporary Jewish writings, um, present and future are common. They are not um, uh, extraordinary. Yeah. So um, it seems to me that you have future and present eschatology within the narrative as opposed to being added by an alien writer. So these are just some of the ways that I worked with John's composition, but also challenged Boltmann's tendency to assume every single theological tension to different sources.
1: Yeah. And so to to kind of, kind of bring that home for us a little bit, I think what uh, what some folks can kind of take away is that there are moments, like you said, in Paul's letters, where we see him emphasize one thing you know, uh, concerning the, maybe the end times, and we see him emphasize another thing, and these don't have to point to Paul being necessarily inconsistent or erratic or even other folks you know, inserting themselves into Paul's letters after the fact. The same would then hold true basically for Jesus' teachings and, and how Jesus is presented in the Gospel of John. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, exactly. And John Riches, my doctoral supervisor, put me on to a great essay by C.K. Barrett in 1972, uh, that the fourth evangelist, but maybe he's a dialectical thinker. So like Mm -hmm. Plato um, talked about um, or presented Socrates as saying, what is thinking? Thinking is the soul's dialogue with herself, looking at things from one side and then another side until finally she achieves her glory. So I think, okay, so, so like in my introduction to the Gospel of John, the yeah. fourth Gospel, okay, <laughs> yeah. uh, what I do in that book is put a dozen theological tensions side by side. Here are the texts, look at the tensions. And then I do a dozen historical problems. Why is John different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, etc.? Or what's the tension between mundane historicity and theological, you know, embellishment, whatever? Mm-hmm. And then literary tensions like whoever is finalizing the Gospel of John says Jesus never said he wouldn't die. Well, it sounds like he's talking about a dead author, okay? <laughs> I do agree with Boltman here that it seems like um, the narrative is finalized and I'd, I'd even say with Boltman by the author of the epistles uh, who also does have a futurist eschatology, you know, that we shall be like him on the last day, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But, that, but, that, but that you have Um, uh, Someone Okay, so so, so you have some of these uh, literary issues here about whether it's all written in one piece or whether we have maybe like a first edition or first stage with some later material added on. So that's also part of my theory. I I think a basic two edition theory uh, both preserves the possibility of apostolic authorship, John, the son of Zebedee. Mm -hmm. I don't think there is any other theory that is superior to that. It's got the most problems, but it also has the most assets. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh,
0: and and the weight of uh, and and the weight of what seems to be pretty yeah,
1: pretty plausible historical tradition.
0: Yeah, right. And so that okay. So after doing my book on the Christology of the Fourth Gospel. Uh, which came out in a third edition that's available uh, with Cascade Books. Congratulations. Yeah. Third edition. means it means people are still interested. <laughs> still more to say about it. So uh, I added a new introduction and, and in an epilogue, I engaged about 40 reviews, which is quite a few. Uh, uh, adding an epilogue, it, it seems
1: like something very appropriate for a John scholar to do
0: since absolutely a lot of folks
1: uh, aren't really sure what to do with chapter 21, because it just feels like
0: it is kind of stuck there on the end. It's very johannine <laughs> yeah. Um uh, so um, what, what, what struck me though is that yeah you have a lot of theological content in John, but you have a lot of mundane material, mm-hmm. a lot of non-symbolic illustrative details in both John and Mark, for instance. Um, and, and, and really uh, what I did, Kevin, was to look at all the similarities and differences between John and the synoptics, as well as between the synoptics and themselves. Mm-hmm. And the okay, so if boltman and others are assuming there's no way that John can be written by an eyewitness because it has a high Christology, because it begins with Christ, him, whatever, whatever. Okay, fine. Yeah. uh, now, 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 he also sidetrack here. Let me, let
1: me, sorry, let me pause you just for a second there because I, I'm envisioning a church audience, uh, and I specifically have like my my middle brother who surprisingly is my podcast biggest fan. Um, yeah, it, it did not study. You know biblical studies in in a formal sense, but has been in church every Sunday and Wednesday night in his life. Um, it's common right for for some folks to doubt that uh, John has any real eyewitness testimony in it because John starts off with these incredibly high statements about Jesus's divinity right the, the, the that sure. might surprise people, but that's a, that's a fair simplification of New Testament studies.
0: Yeah. Let, let me go there before I move on. Sure. So I think that's a total fallacy. Um, uh, true or false? The whole thing was written all in one setting, preparing for a final exam. Well, that's <laughs> probably not the way ancient texts were written. Yeah. Um, Especially and, ones that lengthy. I mean, the
1: Gospel of John isn't the letter to Philemon.
0: Yeah. And, and, and true or false um, you have somebody writing down everything just from memory as opposed to um, producing in written form what's been preached. False. Uh, we have a lot of preaching and finally gets preserved you know, mm-hmm. either by the author or some other people. So uh, think about this fact. Um, the mistake people make on that very point is that a pre-existent in beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. Uh, all things came to being through Him. See? So you have a Christ hymn at the beginning, mm-hmm. But if that's the case, Jesus is totally divine and his feet don't touch the floor. That, that was Ernst Kasemann's view. Yeah. Uh, Kasemann called it even a docetic, a non-human or superhuman Christology. Mm-hmm. Again, I'd be happy with that. But the problem is that the facts in the text show that Jesus wept. Water yeah. and blood came out of his sight. The eyewitness, the eyewitness saw that he really was a human. Okay. Yeah appealing to his humanity not his divinity and he really suffered and died and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in yourselves yeah. you see? and so that's saying we're willing to suffer like jesus suffered otherwise don't expect to be raised with him on the last day and so the gospel of john is highly incarnational now now, now here, here, here's Boltmann's view because case was Boltmann's student and mm-hmm. he and case made a career out of disagreeing with his professor <laughs> now kevin I don't encourage my students <laughs> to take up Keesomon's example, although they're <laughs> welcome to disagree. Sure. Uh, but 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 Boltmann argued that the theology of the evangelist, the gospel writer, was totally incarnational. He's totally human, so Boltman had to imagine that all the high material came from the Gnostics, mm-hmm. uh, a John the Baptist cult that went into Gnosticism later on. So all the revelation sayings, um, you know, are kind of a gnosticizing of jesus's teachings yeah. that get picked up later in the odes of solomon and uh, syllabian oracles and uh sibling oracles and some other works mm-hmm. okay so now now here, here's a fact though that's a problem with assuming that the prologue is the first stroke of the quill i think i'm gonna write me a uh, gospel narrative here and i think i'll begin it with um a uh, christological hymn no that's that's probably not the way things happen yeah. Probably, uh, okay. Because pleroma and monogenes, uh, I mean fullness and and uh, only begotten. Yeah, a couple of Greek terms. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. That are that are in the prologue, uh, verses one through eighteen, or at least some of those verses, um, and logos as a preexistent uh, reference, as opposed to the word, uh, the prophetic word of Jesus, like the word. <clears throat> uh, those themes do not occur elsewhere in the narrative they're most like first John chapter one, verses one to three. Mm-hmm. So in him was the word of life and, and we, we, uh, have, uh, we, we have seen and heard and we testify to his glory kind of a thing. So, so <clears throat> I might imagine that if first John uh, the epistle came from hearing what John the apostle was preaching uh, like uh, we have heard these things from the beginning. thank you for reminding us of the Jesus stories and maybe it's, and maybe John the, the elder is also an eyewitness it could be um, but but you know kind of responding to the preaching of the beloved disciple and saying yes this is the new commandment and, and we believe these things and love one another uh, it's the old commandment we've heard from the beginning like we know the gospel narrative and here's yeah. a new, you know, doxological beginning of of the epistle. Well, maybe that's how also the Christ hymn developed as a response to the narrative. In other words, maybe that reflects John the Elder's uh, community composition, a confessional affirmation of the stuff in the narrative. Mm. And so I think it originated as a response to the narrative. And if you look at verses one to five, and then nine to 14, and then uh, 16, to uh, 18 uh, and take out the uh, four John the Baptist references, okay, maybe the text originally began with John the Baptist. And that being the case, it's like the Gospel of Mark. And so so if, if John the Apostle or whoever wrote the narrative has heard Mark performed in a meeting for worship, maybe the first edition of John is the second gospel, not the fourth gospel. And maybe it's written to be different, and it has five miracles, not eight, and those five miracles are not in Mark. And so number one and number two, this is early Seth, before Mark 1, thank you very much. And then three other miracles, not including John 6, not including John 21, but three other miracles in John 5, John 9, John 11, those are in Bethany or in Jerusalem. So if we have familiarity with Mark, The first edition of John as the second biography of Jesus, building on Helen Bond's good work, the first biography, Mm Martin's. The um, the first edition of John is the second biography, although it's not circulated, it's still a local document, but it has five miracles that are not in Mark. So it's an augmentation of Mark. It's different on purpose, filling out the picture. And, And if you can imagine the first edition or stage Concluding at chapter twenty-one, um, Jesus did many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples, not written in this book. I know Mark's out there. Stop bugging me for <laughs> leaving stuff out. I'm doing this on purpose. I'm not trying to duplicate Mark. I'm trying to build around Mark. But these things are written that you might believe he's the Christ in mm-hmm. God's name. And, and so you have an acknowledgement of Mark, but also John's distinctiveness in the first ending. And also in the final ending, which I do think was added by, by by the redactor. Look, if we would have included everything, including the stuff in Luke and Matthew as well as Mark, you wouldn't have enough libraries, let alone enough books, to include everything. So get off our case for, <laughs> for leaving the synoptic stuff out. We've got access to it. We're trying to do something kind of complementary here, and maybe setting the record straight here and there. Yeah. So get off our case for not being a synoptic gospel. <laughs> I understated a little bit.
1: I, I, I like how you uh, I like how you kind of uh, assume the voice of, of these these folks who sort of put together the final edition of this. That's uh, that's good. That could be a one act play. Yeah, maybe at uh, <laughs> maybe at our, our next uh, our next meeting. Um, you mentioned then the Gospel John uh, of John and called it a biography. That yeah. brings us to one of the other questions that I wanted to ask. Walk us through what is the genre? What's the literary type of the Gospel of John? And what then, what kind of expectations would that give, you know, audience members or, or, or readers of the Gospel of John? Yeah.
0: Uh, let me say something about John's composition. then Let me say something about biographies.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: So um, I'm, I'm happy to see Mark as, you know, completed after, you know, written earlier, but completed around the destruction of Jerusalem, you know, 67 or 70.
1: Uh, and that's that's a fairly consensus position right for a lot lot
0: of think that and it makes sense although i think i think it could have been started earlier Mm -hmm. the traditional view i think is correct by by papius okay notice that papius is eusebius um 339 is quoting papius but papius is citing the elder john the elder Mm -hmm. who has three compliments but criticisms of mark first of all um it's written by John Mark, who is from Alexandria, Paul's helper, not a disciple, okay, but John Mark, a, a Greek uh, Christian leader, mm-hmm. um, who preserved Peter's preaching. But he got it in the wrong order. So when John moves the temple incident early instead of late, I don't think that's theology. I think that's a chronological opinion. He might have been wrong. But, I think, but, but, but think about this john's jesus goes to and from jerusalem several times not just once mm-hmm. john's jesus ministers over three passovers not just once like the synoptics so in that sense john's three year or you know two and a half year ministry is more historically plausible than the synoptic single year ministry even the gospel of mark has two springtimes when the feedings happen mm-hmm. and so but only one passover so 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 i think That the opinion that Mark is crafted on, you know, presents Peter's preaching for those who won't meet Peter uh, around the time of his getting older or being in prison or or dead. Mm -hmm. um, That that makes sense. I also, in my introduction to the New Testament, uh, From Crisis to Christ, Abingdon, a contextual intro, um, I have cited five points of commonality within a Petrine tradition or trajectory. So you look at Peter's preaching in Acts and 1st and, uh, Peter and 2nd Peter and the content of Mark, you have five common themes that suggest that we really do have critical evidence for Mark representing Peter's stuff yeah. <laughs> and, and other stuff. So that's, that's the first compliment or critique of, of John the Elder, according mm-hmm. to Peter and then Eusebius. The second one is, is, well, Mark's not really history. It's just Peter telling stories for his audiences. That's interesting. Yeah, You can make that up. It probably represents a real opinion, although it's, it's not entirely true, probably. But how about this? If he's going to paraphrase, so can we. That's criticism as license. And so a good point. John's Jesus probably spoke in parables, like the synoptics, rather than I am sayings. Probably the i am sayings probably reflect the teachings of john or or the beloved disciple about jesus but notice this fact each of the nine themes or images in john's i am sayings are mentioned by jesus in the synoptics Mm -hmm. so way truth and life um, the door the shepherd (laughs) uh, life uh vine yeah so all of these christological themes light of the world is also in matthew all these Christological themes in Johannine I am sayings did not originate in Gnosticism. They originated, I think, in the historical Jesus and his mission, yeah. or his ministry. But I think that John um, Christologizes them, or, or how about this? He uses, he he, he expands Jesus's teachings theologically, um, which which is what he accuses Peter of doing also. And so there's criticism as license. Third point. Um, now, this actually defends Mark against criticisms. Mark has two feedings, two sea crossings, sometimes multiple healings that are similar. And so um, uh, Papias and John the Elder want to defend Mark's duplications, saying he, he wasn't fouling up. He wanted to be sure that he didn't lose, leave anything out. But notice that that's a critique of duplication. Therefore the Johannine evangelist, probably also sought to be non-duplicative. That's why he leaves Mark's material out overall. Now, you have to include the passion narrative, but but that's why he doesn't. Because you guys already know that. And so I think those three features of Papias actually uh, are confirmed by the facts of of comparing John and Mark. So so I would see the first edition of John, um, maybe even, you know, formative Uh, not circulated, no evidence that it's circulated. Although we do have evidence that in uh, P66, the Bodmer papyrus, uh, that you have the end of chapter 20 having an inch and a half gap at the end before chapter 21 starts in. So that would suggest that in the second century, at least somebody copying the stuff thought that John 21 was added later or was a separate unit. Mm So I do think there's evidence for more than one edition of John's material by yeah. the earliest full manuscript of the Gospel of John. So, 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 so I would see the first edition of John around 80 or 85, but therefore the second gospel before Matthew and Luke are circulating. Okay. Then I think we have the writing of the epistles, 85, 90, 95, total guess, but, but not too bad. Mm-hmm. Then um, again, according to Eusebius, John the apostle died into the reign of Trajan, Trajan becomes emperor in 98. And so after the death of John the apostle or the beloved disciple, whoever he is, then I see the author of the epistles after having written to churches in the area, then adds material, as the prologue, as John six, as John 15, 16, and 17. So 1431, let us depart, originally went into 18 one to get to the garden. And then chapter 21, maybe adding also 19, uh, 34 and 35, uh, the eyewitness saw these things. His testimony is true. Water yeah. and blood came out of his side. So, so that's kind of a bare minimum of you know plausible stuff to be added in a final edition yeah. uh, by the final editor. And so, so, so this, that be, so that would be around one hundred, and therefore you probably by then have familiarity with with Matthew and Luke. Although I do think that Luke uses John's tradition as one of his sources.
1: Oh, interesting. That. Sounds like an interesting conversation for another time because that would be um, that might get us a little more technical than than kind of what we're doing now. But that uh, that, that would be pretty interesting to kind of dig into that a let little
0: me, bit. Let, let me just mention the the bare bones facts of that. Sure. Luke departs from Mark six dozen times, seventy two, and probably more, in ways that coincide with John. Oh. <laughs> One feeding instead of two. Yeah. right There's cut off. <clears throat> um, a catch of fish although he, he puts that at the beginning instead of the end mm-hmm. so i don't think that luke has a text i think he's hearing the material um, he has um, a a foot anointing instead of a head anointing following john so there's just, there's just some of the examples where maybe luke in 1 2 in luke 1 2 says thank you johannine tradition and servants of the word right <laughs> it says in servants of the word Thank you, Johannine tradition, for everything that I can find here.
1: Yeah, kind of a coded reference there. So to kind of cap off this, uh, this discussion about maybe how the Gospel of John was put together, yeah. what mm-hmm. we might see then is, um, is you know, material largely stemming from an eyewitness. And then what we would have later is um, <clears throat> you know, uh, someone coming back and helping to craft that narrative in a way that is still very much true to the life and teachings of Jesus but in a way that would also still be perfectly in conjunction with the conventions of writing a biography of that day and time which you know to our modern sensitivities if it's not chronological or if it's not obviously thematic you know with subheadings and you know footnotes and maps and charts and everything then, then we often don't know what to do with it. But for for John and a, and later, uh, really a later group, maybe, mm-hmm. to to help bring some structure to this kind of thing, that yeah. would have been perfectly appropriate. Is that kind of a fair summary of of yeah. what we've gone over so far?
0: Sure. And also, John the apostle might have had John the elder helping as a scribe, or some other people as well. And so mm-hmm. uh, he wrote these things. You know, it could be he's dictating or, sure. or, or whatever. Um, I do think the later material goes back to John the Apostle. <clears throat> so here, here I'm following Raymond Brown, uh, that, that we probably have some later, okay, so later preaching, and mm-hmm. think about these themes. Um, when you are in a difficult situation, the Holy Spirit will help you sort things out. Yeah. So in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, that, um, you know this, this represents later teaching of the relevance of Jesus. How about the prayer of Jesus in John 17? father keep them in unity because the church is falling apart (laughs) okay so that and how about john six where under domitian 81 to 96 who's requiring emperor worship if you don't worship the emperor and you're kicked out of the synagogue then you may suffer and die um this is part of what happens with the pliny and trajan correspondence two decades later Mm -hmm. uh, where um, the governor of bithynia (coughs) is writing to um the emperor trajan and saying, Look, these two women, they just won't bow down and worship your idol and they won't deny Christ. Should we torture them to death? Uh, should we kill them or not? I mean, that's the policy. Yeah. And get this. And he says, And some people say, We put them up on trial. They said, Look, they've been confessing Caesar for 20 years now. Okay. And so all they do is meet with those people. They're not real Christians. They say they're not real Christians. They just eat common food and sing a hymn to Christ as though he were God but they do offer incense uh, to, to Caesar and, and 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 they deny Christ. So we know they can't be Christians. Mm-hmm. So, so when you look at John six, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no life in yourselves. Uh, okay, now Bultmann thought that that is requiring the Eucharist for salvation. And he thought that John's theology is that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through Christ himself. So Bultmann um, and this, this is an astute theological judgment that I agree with. Boltman argued that if somebody really believes that Jesus is the only way to God, that that person could not at the same time say, oh, but you got to do it this way. Or if you don't take the Eucharist, then you're going to hell, okay? Or, or you have no life in yourselves. There, there we go. Um, uh, and so Boltman thought, no, no, there's no way that that could be written by the evangelist. It had to be added by the redactor or the editor. When I look at that though, I don't think it's talking about a ritual or liturgy or taking the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Uh, John's community probably had table fellowship. I think the issue is more similar to Mark 10, 38 and 39, where Jesus says to James and John, the Boanerges, sons of thunder,
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. or no,
0: actually in this case, it's, it, yeah, it, it's to James and John, um, are you willing to drink my cup and be baptized in my baptism? Now, he's not saying, are you willing to get liturgical? No, he's saying, are you willing to suffer and die with me if required by the truth? Yeah. And so the association there is martyrological. So I think the association of John six is martyrological, especially later during the time of Domitian, Mm -hmm. where if you don't confess Caesar, you're gonna suffer and die. So the Antichrist in first John chapter four who denied jesus came in the flesh see these are the docetists if, if jesus didn't suffer we don't have to suffer it's okay to worship caesar see so i see these as second generation pauline uh assimilative teachers saying it's okay to go to the festivals and to be greco-roman and to worship caesar and eat food yeah. on of idols you don't have to be all that jewish
1: kind of a corruption of what paul says about meat sacrificed to idols in first corinthians 8.
0: yeah yeah, yeah. And, and so and so i might even say, guess here that that's what offends the Jewish believers who in John in 1 John 2, 18 to 25, um, they split off and, and go back into the synagogue because these people are are totally offensive <laughs> to <Jewish laughs> monotheists. Yeah, so, so would be. John's church, now they're also called the Antichrists, And as you, so you have two Antichristic groups, not one, okay? So here I'm disagreeing with scholars. Um, they try to mix everything up into one big Antichristic stew, and let's throw mm-hmm. it. And you know, 666 Now, uh, the beast in six six six. That is that is Nero and Domitian. That's that's imperial cult and imperial hegemony.
1: Also, appropriate to mention here that the word Antichrist just never shows up in the Book of Revelation.
0: It's, it's only in First just- John and Second John, and mm-hmm. that's a biblical fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the first group split off, and because they they also want to preserve Jewish monotheism. And so the, the point here is that, hey, if you deny the son, you're going to lose the father. Mm-hmm. If you receive the son, you get the father, okay? Now, now now that relates to the father-son relationship in the Gospel of John, where Jesus in fulfilling Deuteronomy 18, he really is a Jewish Messiah because his word comes true. And so the prophet like Moses, that's Jesus the Messiah, okay? And so there's a Northern Galilean Samaritan kind of theology would affirm that. But the 2nd antichristic threat is not, a schism. It's not a secession. They're not secessionists. They're invasionists. It's don't let them come to your church, especially if they teach that it's okay to go to these kind of movies. Or mm. I, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's okay to go to these kind of Roman festivals. <laughs> so, so there the issue is assimilated with Roman culture, but this the same bad language as we have dealing with a church split and a church invasion. Yeah. Um, another crisis later on. Diotrephes, though, who loves to be first, and this relates to John and Matthew. Yeah. Diotrephes, who loves to be first, I don't think that's selfishness. I think it's primacy. So, with Ignatius of Antioch, who says appoint one bishop in every church, and citing keys to the kingdom of Matthew, uh, you know, and uh, developing church hierarchy after the mm-hmm. apostles are gone, maybe Diotrephes in Third John nine and ten, maybe he was a proto-Ignatian hierarchical leader setting up a kind of a church hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And, and apparently he's keeping out John's Christians from his church. Don't let them. no, keep them out. And so that's one reason that I think the elder, uh, he, he says, I write to the church, probably Antioch. And then he says, I'm I, and, and I'm gonna to talk to Diotreus when I see him next. Oh, he's willing to go along with Matthew 18, uh, confronting the brothers face-to-face <laughs> and then bringing the council together. He's willing mm-hmm. to go along with that, but he's, he's disagreeing with his use of matthew 16 okay that um that jesus installs peter and ignatius and Diotrephes as hierarchical leaders <laughs> right um, yeah i mean papacy is, is too early here but hierarchical leaders in the church in a Episcopal system as a way of holding the church together so get this in john six and, and of course my work on john's christology focuses on john six comparing with the synoptics so um, in 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 matthew 16 which people would be familiar with in the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. uh, peter's confession is responded to by jesus you're peter upon this rock' going build of my church in case he does not built against it etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, in john 6 peter affirms jesus's authority he doesn't receive authority from jesus he affirms jesus authority. you alone have the reach of eternal life so as a way of overstating this how about how about this does that present Peter so this is a question not a claim does John 6 present Peter as returning the keys back to Jesus where they belonged all along mm. Christ is Lord not Diotrephes.
1: yeah so it's pos- so kind of what you're presenting then is that it you know Part of part of some of the way that maybe Gospel of John and the letters from John. Uh, by the way, for folks who um, who are not used to hearing the word Johannine, that's just the adjective, you know, meaning comes from John. I think yeah. earlier you had mentioned Petrine, yeah. uh, which simply means comes from Peter. Um, yeah, a terminology that I had to I had to get up to speed with pretty quick when I jumped into seminary after yeah. being a history major, not a Bible major, in undergrad. Yeah. Um, but kind of what you're presenting here is that maybe some of what we see in the Gospel of John and in the Letters of John would be a correction of a misuse of some of these verses that we see in the Synoptic Gospels. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, yeah. And when uh, Christology was reviewed at the national meetings, this is 1998, I think it was, um, Raymond Brown was going to be one of the reviewers and he went and died. I was, <laughs> So sad, no, so untimely, he was only 70. (laughs) Um, So we drew in, in addition to Bob Kaiser, Sandra Schneider's, uh, Alan Padgett, uh, we drew in Alan Culpepper, and then Graham Stanton, uh, the leading mathematician scholar in the world. um, Yeah. From Cambridge, the the Lady Margaret Professor. And so Graham asked, (laughs) as he was pointing to to Christology, uh, chapter 10 of Christology, where I'm engaging Matthew there. I said, now, now come on, Paul, if you're saying that John is critical of Matthean hierarchy uh, because it's instrumentalist and high, highly institutional, I don't think that's really fair to Matthew. And I said, Graham, you're absolutely right, and here's why. Uh, in uh, Matthew also has graciousness. So even though Peter is presented in 16 as receiving instrumental keys to the kingdom, Peter is also asked in Matthew 18 to forgive seven times 70. So you have graciousness and forgivingness in Matthew. Exactly. I think you have egalitarian themes in Matthew, as well as setting up church structure and hierarchy to some degree.
1: Mm-hmm. But all
0: it takes is one bad example, Diotrephes. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Who is yeah. kind of pushing things sideways in a way which brings, um, you know, a, uh, uh, an ideological corrective. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, this, this goes back to von Harnack, the German uh, scholar. Giotropes mm-hmm. might not have been the first monopiscopal uh, uh, church bishop, um, bishop in the early church, but he's the first one we know of by name.
1: Right. <laughs> it's it so, kind of an infamous uh, mention there too, yeah.
0: But you got several tensions in the later Johannine situation. In an early situation is Judeans and Galileans, maybe mm-hmm. a bit of competition with John the Baptist. Then I think you do have tensions with the synagogue, but I think that John is thoroughly Jewish. Right. I think the separation of the ways has happened. I think Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. I think John argues for the center of Judaism, like Paul argued for the boundaries of Judaism. Mm-hmm. I think John is radically Jewish and not anti-Semitic. Pro Jewish. Okay.
1: Folks might be surprised to learn that. Um, you know, some, some people in, in biblical studies think that the Gospel of John is anti-Semitic because some Jewish groups get presented in a negative light. Sure. And, and so that, you know, and so I think you're, I think you are right to speak to that, that, you know, the Gospel of John is thoroughly Jewish.
0: Yes. And, and, and,
1: and proudly so.
0: And, and all of the general statements about Israel or uh, uh, Udayoi, the Jews, they're all either positive or they're neutral. The only ones that are negative are when they're in Judea, Judea, or mm-hmm. Jerusalem. And so it, it's Judean leaders that are against Jesus. But also some Judeans do believe in Jesus. In Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's a fact. And, and you can have your own theories, but you can't have your own facts. So, so I do think we have tensions with a synagogue, but it's not the only source of dialectical tension in the situation. I think you have movement in and out of the synagogue, that kind of a thing. Then I think you have tensions with the Roman imperial cult under Domitian, especially 81 to 96, but continuing later. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and notice this: Thomas's confession in uh, John 20:28, 20, "My Lord and my God." That's what Domitian required people to say to him, "Lord and God." So it's anti-Domitian, okay. Yeah. And, and so, so that's what that's why I'll push the first edition around 85 80 or 85 because it's okay. pushing back against that yeah and and then after that okay and these crises are somewhat sequential but largely overlapping the crisis never goes away it just gets pushed aside by something else <laughs> that's the real world
1: feels like it feels like 2020
0: not like it. 2020. <laughs> and 2021 yeah no kidding it's <laughs> 2022 uh, uh yeah well here's hope uh, so, so so then you have uh, docetism you have just suffer so i don't have to suffer now now here's an interesting fact about that later material all of the incarnational themes at least most of them uh, in in the narrative are in the later material in the, in the prologue where became flesh and blood among us the eyewitness saw that water and blood came out of his side mm-hmm. john 6 you must eat my flesh and drink my blood uh, chapters 15 and 16, you will have tribulation in the world. It shows you how true the Bible is. Uh, <laughs> then, then chapter 21, uh, yeah, here's how Peter's going to die. Here's how the beloved disciple, oh, I guess he's already dead. So, so you have all these themes about suffering and the point that Jesus suffered, was willing to do the same as an anti-discetic set of concerns in the later Johannine material, however that happened. Yeah. And Then the final issue is um dealing with people like Diotrephes, uh like methean hierarchy well not methean but ignatian hierarchy building on matthew and right yeah and then i suppose the seventh crisis would be just engaging the synoptics so agreeing with mark but setting it straight um you know probably the first edition i don't think knows luke or matthew but maybe engaging them later on
1: yeah yeah regarding the uh the the incorrect use of mathean hierarchy, you know, giving Peter kind of the, the keys to the kingdom. Um, <clears throat> my my church tradition, uh, churches of Christ, we are historically congregationalist, and so yeah, yeah. It, if if you want to cut church hierarchy down, we're we're all for it, man.
0: Well, <laughs> we're happy about that. And, and Kevin, let me just make this point. That's why you have different ecclesiologies. They're all biblical, <laughs> and, and I think now now i'm I'm saying this as an evangelical quaker sure yeah um uh, so so i'm picking up on you know third john 9 and 10 and i'm going oh my goodness here is somebody who's holding on probably to positional leadership Mm. who's saying you guys can't come to my church out of my church whoa and maybe doing so in the name of of petrine authority (laughs) so when you have peter and the beloved disciple presented the gospel of john where peter gets it wrong blood well, disciple gets it right yeah it, it's something of you know two great apostolic leaders but it also shows something of a critique of hierarchical ecclesiology represented by Petrinism in the later you know first century yeah now, now, now disagree with raymond brown raymond brown changed his view later in his career after the first uh um, volume of his commentary uh, or after his commentary, moving on towards the Johannine epistles, saying, "Okay, okay, the the writer of John can be an eyewitness, even if he isn't one of the twelve, even if he isn't John the Apostle. So, like, if it's John the Elder, who was an eyewitness but not one of the twelve, okay, it's still eyewitness testimony. It doesn't have to be one of the twelve. And then and then he made this move, which I disagree with." He said, the fact that we have tensions between the beloved disciple and apostolic Peter shows that John's author could not have been one of the 12, citing Kuhlmann. Mm-hmm. And Kuhlmann would say, well, if John doesn't have the institution of the Lord's Supper, there's no way it's written by an eyewitness, see? Because that was the main reason Jesus came, to set up the Eucharist, da da, 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 da. okay, <laughs> okay and now he, he's reflecting his own ecclesiology. Sure kind of historical guess that he's making. Mm-hmm. I think that we have a disagreement with Petrine hierarchy within the 12 among the apostles. Or how about this? What if you are an apostle, but but apostolic authority is being usurped and the coin is being spent in directions that would, that historical Jesus would have disagreed with? if jesus came to bring a charismatic group a cadre of people that are informal and egalitarian um i think john the apostle or whoever's the source of john's historical jesus memory is saying no no jesus ministered with women not just men (laughs) it was an egalitarian community he didn't set up hierarchy Mm. okay so this gets to historical jesus issues i think that john's interest in putting forth a picture of jesus who is spirit-based, egalitarian, embracing women and Samaritans, et cetera, et cetera, I think, I think that's important for understanding the Jesus of history, not just the Christ of faith. And that's why we need to to have a fourth quest for Jesus, which includes the Gospel of John, because the first three quests have programmatically excluded the Gospel of John for a variety of reasons, including its theological thrust.
1: Yeah, and these quests that you're mentioning are, are kind of, uh, just sort of summarizing, summarizing it briefly for an on, for our audience who might not be familiar with these uh, sort of general kind of scholarly trends or movements in how we understand Jesus. Uh, one crass way to put it is that you know in, in some of the earlier what were later called quests, uh, folks were basically trying to cut through the gospels to uh, to cut out all the the miraculous and the things that quote we know don't happen and to get to you know the jesus of history as opposed to like you said the christ of faith um the kind of the more recent trend these days is to allow for you know us to see maybe a little bit closer connection with the gospels and you know jesus of history and but like you mentioned because the Gospel of John is so so different, and because it has such a high Christology there at the beginning, that's why a lot of folks have been very hesitant to uh, to admit his a lot of historical material in the Gospel of John. But I think you and uh, folks like my uh, dissertation mentor Craig Keener and other folks have made a, a very strong case that we we simply. We simply shoot ourselves in the foot when we exclude something like the Gospel of John because it does contain some rich traditions that really do take us back to either our witnesses' accounts, Jesus himself, those kinds of things. So that that's just, for, an, for our audience, it just kind of briefly summarizes sort of where, where New Testament study is studies is on this particular issue.
0: Um, yeah, thanks, Kevin. Uh, a book that I've just edited, it's Impressed with Erdman's right now. Look for it. Uh, archaeology and the Gospel of John and Jesus, mm-hmm. okay? So um, over two dozen top archaeologists in the world have written essays on archeological discoveries and the Gospel of John. So I think we're really entering a new phase of biblical studies here, uh, yeah. the mundane material in John, as well as the theological stuff. Now, this gets back to your earlier question about form criticism. So um, those quests go back to uh, Germany, continental Europe. Uh, 150 years ago, mm-hmm. um, some scholars back then were seeing the gospels as BIOI or as biographical narratives. And some scholars made some guesses. Here's what he did. Here's, here's what he was trying to do. That kind of a thing, which got, got into some speculative, um, uh, uh, low probability, uh, imaginations. Yeah. People pushed back against that because scholars don't want to make mistakes. And so you have a pushback against biographical narrative, saying that the Gospels were not historical narratives, they were gatherings of fairy tales or mythological units. So form criticism, um, tried to understand what is literary form of a parable, of a miracle story, of this kind of a statement, maybe even different kinds of parables. Okay. And assuming that, like the um uh, l- like uh, uh, the the fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm, mm-hmm. who who re- did their research at Marburg during the time that Boltmann was teaching at Marburg. Okay, so so so, so you've got these Grimm's. Fairy I didn't stories. know
1: there was that kind of overlap.
0: Yes, and wow, Bultmann, and de- and Boltman developed his form critical theory underlying the Gospel of John synopses on the basis of fairy tales. Assuming that you could know, like, okay, now, now, the Brothers Grimm were doing really interesting work. Um, they would wait to, to write down a story until they had heard it repeated uh, four or five times from different sources and saying, okay, this really is a traditional story and here's how it came together. Now, <clears throat> I think you do have some of that with how gospel traditions developed, but still, but, but that's different from um uh you know uh eyewitness memory mm-hmm. or second or third generation or second orality or third orality memory of telling stories about jesus as opposed to simply uh adopting greco-roman mythology or right. jewish mythology uh like little units and, and making it into a narrative mm-hmm. so so what has carried the day in gospel studies for for a century and a half is the view that the gospels are not biographies they are form critical um fairy tales that's how this stuff came together <laughs> and, okay, and so bultman did that with the gospel of john we have a science source jewish we have a passion narrative that's independent jesus memory we have revelation sayings uh, the i am sayings the prologue that are gnostic we have an evangelist the stuff fell apart and some other material <clears throat> and the editor put it together in the wrong order so in Boltman it together in the right order lo and behold you get Gnostic poetry in the in the sayings okay so, so, so for those so, who
1: are just listening and not watching um <clears throat> Paul Paul just said the right Boltman put in that quote unquote right order okay I just want you to catch that
0: right order which yeah. allowed him to come up with oh look at this Gnostic poetry um so so also my work on John 6.
1: Boltmann was certainly creative, if,
0: if nothing else. I mean, I have written this, that Boltmann's um, commentary on John is the first or second most important New Testament book in the entire 20th century. I might say it's first or second in related to Schweitzer's quest of the historical Jesus. Yeah. So it, it's, it, it's so monumental and so masterful that you, that you can't go around it. You have to engage yeah. in it.
1: Like I was saying earlier, for, for folks who don't know, yeah. right or wrong, and the, there are a lot of folks who do actually disagree with this guy these days, but right or wrong, there was, I mean, you just simply can't, you can't not deal
0: with, now, with if, this guy if, and what he thought. If there are any scholars in your audience who who are interested in <clears throat> um you need to read my Christology book, because it looks at John 6, mm-hmm. and I have about four or five chapters on John 6 and Bultmann's treatment of it. And and here's what I did, Kevin. Um, I took all of his evidence throughout his entire gospel, stylistic, contextual, and theological tensions, all of that evidence, and I applied it within John 6, comparing it with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what I found is that those stylistic criteria are non-indicative. So yes, you do have action narrative, but that doesn't mean it's Jewish you do have abstract nouns, it doesn't mean it's Hellenistic, okay? Yeah. Right. So I'm right. saying yeah. that there's no evidence for alien sources underlying the Gospel of John. And here agreeing with Boltmann, John is not dependent on Mark. Every time you have a similarity to Mark, it's different. So I agree with Boltmann, Moody Smith, um, Mark Matson, and others, that no, John is not dependent on Mark. I think John might follow Mark's example but does something different, mm-hmm. complementary, but also pushing back. Um, here, here's an example of pushback. Jesus never said that. Now this is John twenty twenty one. Um, because of this, the rumor spread this disciple would not die until Jesus returned again. Mark nine one. So you have Mark nine one as a problem. There are people standing here who will not taste death. They sent a man coming to all his glory. Peter's preaching. But John wants to say, Jesus never said that. From day one he said, What is it to you if you live till I come again? Right. So Peter got it wrong from, from day one. <laughs> Jesus never said that. That, mm-hmm. that. that that might not be significant, but that's just an example of, of pushing back. And the Last Supper was on a Thursday, not on a Friday. I mean I mean I mean Friday Passover meal is the Passover. And even in Mark, he's not killed on the Passover, he's killed on the day before the Passover. And so on a Thursday evening, the Passover, and, and so yeah, it, it was, okay, it's during Passover week, but it's the day before the Passover. So John is, is chronologically correct on that, as well as maybe, okay, on, on, on the temple incident, you have John the Baptist, early material in, in John 1 to 3. Well, John the Baptist is challenging Sadducees and priests and Romans and people uh, as a prophetic, disturbing figure in history fact probably um yeah and so jesus ministers alongside john the baptist also doing a temple demonstration so it probably is an inaugural sign like john the baptist was doing which gets him in trouble next time he goes to jerusalem and so i think uh, john chapter 2 is chronologically intended and maybe even chronologically arguable yeah paul let's
1: uh let's go i'm sorry go ahead
0: um, so there's a problem with that view, though. Um, if John is chronologically correct and Matthew, Mark, we are, chron- are chronologically wrong, what do we do with biblical authority? <laughs> well, it's in the Bible, okay? Yeah. But but this might be a guess. If Mark is preserving Peter's preaching, Mark is constructing a general chronology, but not a knowing chronology. So Mark has a beginning, middle, and end. Uh, so if mark according to traditional view is written by john mark well um he, he he's just ordering it really nicely and so it's mark's chronology that is ordered by narrative sequence as opposed to john's
1: mm-hmm. for those who have been kind enough to to stick through this series on the new testament that i'm doing some of the earlier episodes in this series were done with Mike Lacona, and one of the things that uh, mike mentioned was our view, of I, I, I'm going to, I've got the quote written around here somewhere, and I just, I don't have it right here. I, I don't, I don't want to run away and you know, have my headphones uh, you know jerk my head, but I, the, what Mike said, I think, is really applicable here. It's that our view of you know, the inspiration of Scripture must be consistent with what we observe in Scripture. And so if God is inspiring these texts, which uh, I'm confident that, you know, the overwhelming majority of of listeners for this particular series will believe in the inspiration of scripture, then that allows for some adjustment, which again, coming from a, you know, coming from someone who has studied um, Greco-Roman historiography and biography. Those kinds of adjustments were perfectly reasonable. They were part of the conventions of writing those kinds of works in that day and time. And so while it might make us squirm in our seats a little bit, for those who maybe are not exposed to this kind of material on a regular basis, or for those who are hearing this just for the first time, might make us squirm a little bit, but you know what we what we see is, you where know, were we to compare, yeah, the Gospels, all four of them, with with biographies written around the same time that include different kinds of um, you know, different kinds of stories involving the same people, or the same stories involving the same people, but written in different accounts, we would see the similar kind of editing and adjustment and all that. And again, it was just convention of the day.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. And how about this? one cannot ascertain the literal meaning of a text unless one has first determined its literary genre. And, mm. yes. and so how is it true? And so I think it's helpful to just appreciate the traditional view that that, that Mark is a collection of Peter's material, and he puts it together in a good order, and Matthew and Luke build upon Mark, and, and build on it in some really great ways, adding some, some new tradition that, that they're aware of. Yeah, um, but as opposed to saying, therefore, John must be totally wrong or John can't be read by an eyewitness because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are right. Wait a minute, wait a minute. John has its own merits as a historical record. Yeah. So we have to just put that together side by side and ask, um, how does John help us even understand how the synoptics were written <laughs> yeah. in its own kind of way? Yeah. Well, let's switch gears
1: just for a moment. And uh, let me ask this question. Um, I had mentioned to you something about uh, maybe digging into some major emphases from a literary standpoint, some major emphases in the gospel of John. Could you talk to us maybe a little bit about either John's emphasis on on either uh, creating or sustaining belief, or maybe John's emphasis on Jesus and his role in giving the Spirit, uh, whichever one of those you would be Yeah, it would be easiest for you to dig into.
0: I think that could be some, gives us some profitable discussion. Yeah. So um, the light shines in the world. The darkness has not overcome it. Isn't that great news, man? I mean, we need that news today. Mm -hmm. And how about this? Uh, The light enlightens everyone. That's the light coming. And so at least potentially, Christ's light is illuminating all people if they will open themselves to it. And as many as believed in Christ, they become children of God, born not of human plans or initiative, but born of divine initiative. And so just holding on to the gospel in that way, um, if if one um, believes in, in God's saving initiative as revealed in Christ Jesus, or if one has even begun believing in that, then here's the story of Jesus. My goodness, you're already walking in the light. Yeah. see, I mean, I think this is great in terms of understanding the gospel and how it works or connecting with the Apostle Paul. Uh, salvation is rooted in grace, undeserved love received by faith. And uh, Abraham believed God to him was credited as righteousness. Praise the Lord for that. Mm-hmm. So so John tells us the story of what God has done in Jesus to facilitate belief in God's saving, revealing activity across the time spectrums and space uh uh, delineations uh happening now in christ jesus and so christ fulfills the prophecies of hebrew scripture Um, he fulfills the prophet like moses agency schema and he also sends the holy spirit uh, who is sent by the father and the son in (laughs) john 14 and john 15 and 16 two passages from the father two passages from the son so the filioque debates and, and dividing the Eastern church from the Western church in mm-hmm. 54. Uh, right, well, both of those themes are in the Gospel of John. <laughs> um, so Christ sends the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Um, Quakers talk about conversion as convincement that the Holy Spirit convicts or convinces people of sin and of righteousness. And so if one is open to the truth about oneself we see how much we really do need God. Uh, the fool has said in his heart, I don't need God. Mm-hmm. So it says as we really are in need of God and therefore receiving God's grace by faith, well, we become the children of God. And so to see the Holy Spirit as therefore uh, convincing people, leading people into the truth, then we're invited to become partners with Jesus, friends of Jesus because you know what I'm doing and you're obedient and responsive to, to the ways that I'm leading, and so, and so I think that a great thing about the Gospel of John, and I include this in my, uh, as the opening to my book on the riddles of the fourth gospel. Uh, the Gospel of John has been called a stream in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. Um, It's the primer for people coming into the faith. We we, we become welcomed into the divine family by just saying yes and thank you to God's gift of love in Christ Jesus. But it's also um, a a stream in which elephants uh, cannot even touch the bottom. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, the Gospel of John, the the Johannine writings are probably the the sector of the New Testament, even the Bible, in which you have the most disagreement among leading scholars around the world, <laughs> because so many different theories addressing different issues of the Johannine riddles are just what scholars try to do, and part of that depends on where they start from or the methodology that they pursue.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask this.
0: kind of had a personal touch here as
1: we kind of wind down our, our time together. Do you have a favorite... Uh, uh, a favorite anecdote or a favorite pericope, a favorite short story from the Gospel of John? And if so, what is it? And, and maybe would you be willing to share
0: why, why that one? Yeah. Well, as so I just mentioned, um, John 15, uh, 14 and 15, uh, I've called you friends, not slaves or servants, uh, because, you, because you know what I'm doing, okay? And, and also because you are obedient uh, to what I ask of you. I think that all believers are called to be friends of Jesus. Uh, You also look at uh, philos and philoi in Hellenistic literature. Uh, That is one of the great virtues that Aristotle uh, builds and also Mm -hmm. also, um, uh, Plato. So to be called to be friends of Jesus is an invitation into apostolic partnership. And I believe that is the calling of every believer to be open to Christ's leading, to be attentive to his leadership, discerning of what it might be, and then responsive and obedient in carrying it out. And that's what I think it means to be a follower of Jesus.
1: Yeah. Amen. Amen. Paul, any last words that you uh, want to leave us with as we, uh, as we wrap up our time together this afternoon?
0: Yeah, just let me say that I've also written a book called Following Jesus, the Heart of Faith and Practice.
1: <laughs> and I, the ones I've, I've been taking notes here, um, I, the ones that you have mentioned, I'll i will um, I'll definitely be sure to put
0: uh, links in the description below. Uh, and that last one was called Following Jesus. Following Jesus, the Heart of Faith and Practice. Um, my three books on John so far are the Christology of the Fourth Gospel, Um, The Fourth Gospel and the Quest for Jesus and the Riddles of the Fourth Gospel. I'm working on another book on John right now, which is um, uh, Jesus in Johannine Perspective, a Fourth Quest for Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably write uh, five or six more books, one on a bioptic hypothesis, one on the composition of John, one on the uh, seven crises over seven decades, uh, one on dialogues with Jesus and John, one on the epistles of John, which uh, I'm, I'm saying they are written in a cosmopolitan setting, not a sectarian setting, and maybe a book on the Beast Antichrist in 666.
1: There you go. All right. Paul, really appreciate your time uh, this afternoon, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you uh, for joining us on the podcast and um, hopefully this will not be the last time that we'll get to uh, get to interact on something along these lines. Sounds
0: good, Kevin. Great working together. Take care. Yeah, take care.